morning. My name is Sven. Uh, we're going to continue in Daniel chapter 7, the second half of the chapter, picking up from verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head, and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from his kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Thanks, Sven. Uh, not an easy passage. Uh, it'd be great to keep your Bible open as we work through it. I will put up sort of some of the key verses on the screen if that's helpful. And uh, for the, the younger members uh, staying in church, there is a, a sheet out the back uh, if that's also helpful for you as we work through this passage. But let me pray as we get into it. Dear Lord, you are the creator of all things and you rule over all things. Help us to understand your word today, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our faith and in our trust of you. Amen. As we look around the world at the moment, uh, it feels a little bit uneasy, doesn't it? You know, over the last couple of years, we've had uh, bushfires, uh, we're now experiencing floods. Uh, if you lived in western uh, New South Wales, we had pestilence, uh, we've had a pandemic. And now uh, in Europe, we see everything that's happening uh, in Russia and, and the Ukraine. And it's disturbing. It's profoundly unsettling. What's happening in life? 
Uh, and then perhaps closer to home, we're experiencing enormous social change, and some of that is directed towards us as Christians. And so how we respond to that will depend somewhat on our expectation. Uh, if we expect that being a Christian is all about sunny days and, and you know, lovely meadows and skipping through the fields, then what's happening right now in the world might feel incredibly confronting because it doesn't align with our expectation for how things are supposed to be. And that can leave us questioning God. Where is God in all of this? Is God in control? Does God care? And with all of that uncertainty, we need to keep coming back to the fundamentals. Uh, that God is in control, that he is working out all things for the good of those who love him. And so sometimes we need to see that in the detail, in the very specifics of you know, Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, but sometimes it's helpful to look at that bigger perspective, to see the, see the detail of our life in the context of human history and God's bigger plan for humanity. Uh, and we get a sense of that bigness here in Daniel 7. So the short version of Daniel 7 is very simple. Uh, don't give up, God rules, and God wins. Uh, but things get a little more complicated when we get into the detail, because it's not always easy to see how that detail fits together, and particularly when you look at it in, in the context of you know, the, the, the big biblical picture and uh, the historical picture and, and practically uh, for our life. Uh, so uh, the short version, I think, looks something like this. Uh, the longer version looks more like... <laughs> and if we're not careful, we're going to end up like that. <laughs> Uh, it's hard with all the detail, but today we're going to work through some of that detail, with hopefully uh, unravelling some of the mystery, but without losing that big sense of perspective. And I think part of avoiding uh, getting entangled in everything is understanding the style of writing. So this section of Daniel is what's called apocalyptic literature. Uh, the most well-known book in the Bible uh, for this style of literature is the book of Revelation. Uh, but there are quite a few examples uh, all the way through the Bible. Uh, and this style of writing uses these incredibly graphic images of beasts and eyes and horns and heads. Uh, and it's all very symbolic. And that's one of the things that makes it so complicated. Because all that symbolism, which might have been very clear uh, to the original you know, readers of this book, is not so clear to us. And so, you know, for, as an example from our passage today, we've got one of the kingdoms described as a bear. Now, we don't know why this kingdom was particularly bear-like, but you get the vibe, don't you? You know, it's big, it's violent, it's powerful, and this particular bear has, you know, particularly bad, poor oral hygiene. You know, he's got ribs stuck in his teeth, it's still very ugly. But, you know, we get the picture of what it's describing, even if we don't get the detail. Uh, it's often suggested that apocalyptic literature was written to criticise the ruling power of the day. You know, you, you could sort of say bad things about them without naming names and, and hopefully, you know, avoiding the wrath of whatever particular king was oppressing you at the time. Now, I think that might be part of the motivation, but more likely, this, this style of writing is about impact because it's highly emotive. You know, it wants to give us a sense of how history fits in the big cosmic struggle of life, as well as the chaos and the brutality 
of life in the present. And so the message is very consistent. In amongst all the violence of kingdoms rising and falling and the persecution that will inevitably come, God is in control. There is a heavenly reality that sits above our earthbound history. And in the end, God will bring everything under his authority and there'll be salvation and vindication for his people. So if you're reading this for the first time, if you're an Israelite reading this for the first time, the message was, don't be surprised at this suffering. God has not abandoned his people. So be faithful. Keep looking to God for your security and comfort because there is nothing else that will provide that lasting security. Uh, There is no kingdom. The values of our world, they come and go, but God lasts forever. And all the way through this book of Daniel, we've seen that sort of faithfulness lived out. And so we've seen it lived out in Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, But in this passage, there's one very noticeable difference. Because so far in the book of Daniel, God's faithfulness has been demonstrated in him protecting Daniel and his friends. Uh, So we saw it in chapter 1 with the food. We saw it in chapter 3 with the furnace. And to go with the alliteration, we saw it in chapter 6 with the furry lions. Okay, that took a lot of time and effort. Uh, But you see the picture. uh, That every time God's people are confronted, God has protected them. Um, But God does not always protect us from bad things happening. And so we need to be prepared. So let's have a look at uh, this passage together. So it starts with chaos. Uh, In my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, coming out of the sea. So the language of the four winds of heaven uh, churning up the sea might be a reference to God's sovereignty over it all, but the focus is really on the chaos. Uh, The sea in the Bible is almost always described as a dangerous place. Uh, It's a place that wants to resist God and consume. Uh, So, for example, uh, Psalm 77, The the waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and, and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. Uh, In Isaiah 17, uh, the violence of the sea is used to describe the violence of the nations. Uh, Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like a raging sea. Woe to the people who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters. When he rebukes them, they flee far away. And then finally, jumping all the way to the end of Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Uh, Now, I'm personally hoping that that language is more metaphoric than literal, uh, but you get the idea that the sea represents chaos. And out of this sea come four beasts. Now, the first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. Now, funny enough, that description is actually more positive than negative. Uh, And most likely it's describing Nebuchadnezzar. In in chapter 2 in this book, we read that Nebuchadnezzar was this head of gold. And so in the book of Daniel, for the most part, Nebuchadnezzar is described positively. And even though he was beastly, uh, he is given humanity. So his wings are torn off, and in this case, that's a good thing. 
and he stands like a human and he's given the mind of a human. And this idea of humanity is really important in this chapter because people are created in the image of God. Uh, So going back to Genesis 1, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. So being a human was about being an image bearer of God. But these kingdoms have lost their humanity and they've become like beasts. They're not even like created beasts. These are are monsters and uh, and abominations of real creation. Uh, But nothing compares to this fourth beast who defies all description. So besides his iron teeth and a little bit later his bronze claws, uh, we don't get a lot of you know, visual picture of this beast, but this creature crushes and devours and tramples. It's an unstoppable force. And most terrifying of all is this little horn uh, that comes up and displaces three other horns. And these horns all represent kingship. Uh, And this one king in particular is perhaps less powerful than others. He's a little horn, uh, but he does a whole lot more damage. He's far more dangerous and particularly to God's people. And so verse 8, this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Uh, So humanity is, uh, for the most part, a good quality. Uh, But here, these eyes kind of have this sort of ominous, you know, you know, foreboding to them, don't they? Uh, it's this idea of intelligence. There's a sense of that he sees and he's watching, he's smart and he's evil. Uh, that's the sense of the description we get. So far in this uh, dream, it hasn't been much of a dream, it's more like a nightmare really, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, you know how our dreams go. They're not the most you know, coherent lot. Uh, so you do go from chaos into a dream, and next thing you know, you're, you're in the meadow. And that's kind of, again, what happens... Here, so he's gone from the chaos of the beast uh, to Daniel standing, and there's a, a whole, you know, completely different scene, and it's a scene that's characterised by order. So all of a sudden, the beasts are gone, and now we have the Ancient of Days sitting on a throne, and there's this sense of calm. The whiteness of his clothes represents his holiness and purity. Uh, the white hair probably represents, we're not totally sure, but age and wisdom. And certainly his title, uh, Ancient of Days, uh, represents that sense of everlasting God. This is the one true God who was there in the beginning and is now coming to judge. And we see that judgment represented in, in the fire that sort of surrounds this uh, throne is flowing out from the throne. Uh, There is power, but there is also order. And so when everything is in place, and the court is seated, and the book is open, and then out of that chaos comes judgment. And judgment is swift. Uh, There are no defiant words, there's no pleading defence, there's no last big dramatic battle. Uh, the beast that was so powerful, you know, just moments earlier, is now destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And in his place comes one who will establish a kingdom that will last forever. Now, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here we have one who comes representing humanity. And at the same time, he's a heavenly figure and he comes on a cloud. And in biblical terms, only God comes on clouds. But he comes representing humanity as it should be. Uh, He is ruling, but he is ruling under the authority of our creator. And so we see this contrast set up on a number of levels. We've got chaos versus order, beastly versus human, power seized versus power given, and dominion that's temporary versus dominion that's eternal. The title Son of Man, though, is interesting, um, because more literally, it should simply be translated as human. And so the idea of son, in literal translation terms, is not in these words. And that makes the link between this vision and the description of Jesus as son of man are a little less clear than perhaps we presume. Uh, but still, it's still there, but less in terms of the, the words and more in terms of his role. And it becomes a lot clearer when you look at that language of son of man across the, the whole of the Old Testament. And so a couple of good examples, and we could look at Isaiah 9, which would be fantastic. But let me read from Psalm 2, which brings a little bit more clarity to this sonship role and the power of the son. So it, said, it starts with, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like, potters, like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the, in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we see that connection just a little more clearly uh, when we jump to the New Testament. So to use one example, Acts 7. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so the book of Daniel is looking forward to the one who will be given authority to rule. Uh, but this is going to be a kingdom like no one. And it's very different to the kingdom they were expecting. Uh, so this kingdom isn't about political power, it's about people. And citizenship isn't about birthright. It's about relationships with God being restored and being restored through his son. And the land that we hope for isn't a geographical, you know, finite land. Uh, it's an eternal kingdom. And so even today, as we live after Jesus, now we only see in part what one day God will bring to completion. And so what Daniel is predicting to see is fulfilled perfectly in Christ, and then we see it completed when Christ comes again. And from a big picture perspective, that's good news. Despite all of the chaos in the world and the brutality of our world, God is in control and God is bringing his kingdom into its place. So Daniel's seen the end, and the end is good. And the end is uh, affirmed by one of thousands upon thousands of those standing before this throne. So verse 18, For the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom, and he will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. 
So that is all good news. Uh, but Daniel is still disturbed, and in particular is disturbed by this fourth kingdom and this little horn. And for good reason. Uh, this horn will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for time, times, and a half a time. And so the end is good, but the journey to that end is going to be horrific. Uh, perhaps an appropriate parallel at the moment is what's happening in Ukraine. You know, the people of Ukraine might be completely confident that they will win this war in the end. Uh, but it doesn't take away from the brutality and the fear and the tragic loss that comes with war in the present. But there is hope, and that hope drives people to persevere. Now, we can't say uh, with any certainty uh, who this horn represents. Uh, there's certainly a lot of people writing about what the horns represent. Uh, one good contestant is a guy called Antiochus IV, which sounds quite impressive. And he, uh, he was about 180 BC. He really did hate uh, the Jewish people. Uh, but in one sense, uh, the detail doesn't matter that much. Uh, what's most significant is the big picture. Uh, we live in a world that has lost that sense of perspective of what it means to be image bearers. Uh, and some people will even hate us for suggesting there is a God and that that God loves them. Uh, we might challenge them in what we say and challenge their worldview. We might simply challenge them in the way we behave, that we don't simply join in with the values of our culture. And in the words of Peter, he says, they're surprised that you don't join in... Uh, Sorry, they're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. I think we can feel that sense of reality in our world today, can't we? Yeah, in our context, abuse will come in the form of ridicule and perhaps uh, social discrimination. Uh, but for other Christians around the world, it's far more brutal, and it comes in you know, genuine in, uh, oppression, you know, where they're facing imprisonment, and for some, uh, facing the real possibility of death. But as we understand the chaotic nature of the world, as we understand actually this is part of God's plan and purpose, it's not easy. But there is some comfort in knowing that God is not in control. That this is what he has ordained for life. This is what he has ordained for humanity. And he will bring it all to his perfect end. And so we continue to put our hope in Christ. Uh, our experience of salvation in the present might not be a Daniel in the lion's den experience, uh, where we're faced with something huge in our life and we are saved from it. That may or may not happen. Uh, but what we can be confident of is our ultimate salvation. Uh, that whatever happens, whether it is from the oppression of the world around us or just simply bad things happening like accidents and sickness, whatever that is, we can be confident that our ultimate salvation is secure, and it's secure in Christ. And so, as we look at Daniel 7, as we lift our eyes to that big picture, we don't give up, and we remind ourselves that God rules, and that God wins. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you, even in the messiness of life, uh, that you are in control, uh, that your son has died for us and secured our salvation. 
And so we can be confident of our hope and our future. And so, Lord, I pray that we're encouraged by even this passage, very difficult passage in Daniel, where we feel the, the brutality of life. Uh, but, Lord, help us to not lose hope. Uh, and thank you that you have sent your son uh, for everything he's done for us. Amen.